Welcome to episode 40 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on the 2nd of October 2019. My name is Martin. I'm Ali. And I'm William. Today we're going to cover a few news stories that have caught our eye in the press recently. And we're going to have our theme this week is going to be things that are hiding in plain sight. Uh, let's start by the things that are furthest out and working our way in on these stories. So who's the furthest out this month? Ooh, who is the furthest out? <laughs> is, it, is it me? It might be me. I think it's me. I think... It is you. It wasn't you, but it is you now. It's I quite think. fuzzy in the numbers. So, yeah. You know. It's changing. As we speak, it's changing I'll, right now. I'll, I'll it just, will change I'll, during this podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll with, just with fuzzy numbers, let's also go for fuzzy faces. And Ali, you start us off. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so yeah, I, I, this, this story popped up on my, my feed uh, because of a diagram. And it's a scaled diagram that appeared in a paper that has been put on the preprint server called Archive. So it's not necessarily published in a science journal yet, but hopefully it will be soon. Uh, and the diagram is fun because it's a scale model of a black hole. Uh, and it's the, about nine centimetres across. It's just a solid black circle. Uh, and uh, without getting too dense into the whole black hey. hole physics thing, um, that is the size of a black hole you would get if you had a five Earth mass object and you crushed it down to be a black hole which means nothing that we know of in physics can support it. It shrinks all the way down, turns into a black hole, and then you get this ring called the event horizon, uh, beyond which everything else is completely dark. And if you cross that, you will fall onto said black hole. So th- sorry, it's quite zinky, th- th- and you can fit it on a piece of A4 paper. The kind of scale way. model or scale thing is a one-to-one scale. It yes. Is, oh, and, but, beautiful. And, so o- only if you print it A4, though, which oh. I don't think it specifies. Well, and that also scares me because, you know, different printers, different settings, you know, God, yeah, that's black hole a, couple it's of a lot bigger. Yeah, uh, but it was kind of fun because I don't think I don't remember that happening before. And clearly a bunch of Twitter people that I follow were also enjoying this. I just going, that's an awesome idea. Why didn't we think of this before? Um, and the reason they have it is actually got nothing to do with sort of black hole physics. It's more to do with. Um, <laughs> did it for fun. Well, the, the, it's the hiding in plain sight thing, and it's really interesting, and it's connected to the Planet Nine story, which we haven't really talked dun, dun, about dun. for a while. It's like a mystery. It's like a murder mystery. There's the stuff happening, and we need to explain it. And uh, so I've sort of dived down the rabbit hole a little bit. So I guess quick summary of Planet Nine is that by looking at how many weird things there are out in the very distant solar system, so stuff beyond the orbit of Neptune. And we found quite a few of these things. Yes, and it, Pluto. There's loads of tiny little things, but there's quite Pl- a few Planet Nine is Pluto. Things. Shut up. Uh, Pluto Sorry. is still officially demoted. So Planet Nine would be the oh. next chunky planet. So Pluto is not very massive. It's what? Less than 1% the mass of the Earth. Not even something like 0.2% yeah, of tiny. a percent of the mass It's of the a full Earth. stop it's of the black hole. Tiddler. It's nothing. Um, so Pluto doesn't count. But there might be something chunky lurking out there. And this is because um, this is quite recent, so sort of 2016, people started to get a handle on the orbits of some of these trans-Neptunian things, which are small and icy, um, and on weirdly aligned orbital paths. So their orbital planes are slightly aligned, and they all come towards their closest point of their orbit on roughly the same side of our solar system, which is weird, and by chance this shouldn't happen. And there's a few different observables here, and they've been sort of piling up a little bit, so it's not like a smoking gun. There has to be Planet Nine out there. But the best explanation right now of why these things are weirdly aligned is that maybe, just maybe, there's something maybe five times more massive than the Earth, maybe ten times more massive, lurking very far away. Um, So Neptune's 30 AU, something like that, from the Sun Astronomical Units, eight minutes at the speed of light. This thing 
is around about 400 to 800 astronomical units. Um, and it's currently on the furthest away part of its orbit if it exists, which is making it really hard to see. Um, Presumably that orbit's incredibly long, so it wouldn't come near us again. Yeah, the periods are something ridiculous. I mean, even for some of these transunion things, you're talking thousands of years, orbital periods. And for the planet 9 itself, it's probably even longer than that. So just to understand, so it's a highly elliptical orbit. So when it's trans-Neptune, is it actually coming in within Neptune's orbit at some point? Within its, um, within it's its not mode. crazy elliptical, um, but it is. It's definitely elliptical, so it has a near point and a far point, and it gets into not much closer than. Um, oh, I can't remember now what its closest approach distance is. But closer than Neptune. Yeah, same yeah. The, tra- the trans Neptune is is in the clue the name. Um, yeah, okay. yeah, so it's it'll be way further out than Neptune. Yeah, so most of the time. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, even though it's relatively light, still five Earth masses is fairly chunky compared to how light. It's pretty Pluto exciting. Is. Um, as big and it's as enough, even though it's remote, to just slightly nudge some of these things over time. But what's weird is that if you didn't have Planet Nine and you just waited, these uh, random alignments of these trans-Neptunian things that we're studying should fall apart over time. So the fact that they're together means there's something out there helping keep them and sort of shepherding them together. Uh, and all you need to do that is a, another thing out there somewhere. And it's, it's kind of fun. It's really interesting because it's kind of how we found Neptune in the first place. It was just mm. paying attention to Uranus. Um, um, I didn't make a Uranus joke, you'll know. Uh, and then uh, really you paying attention to it. Sort yeah, of, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so really paying attention to it to the point where it's so precise its positions on the sky you can see it's slightly wandering uh, ever so slightly not where you'd expect it to but then when you factor in the gravity from neptune it, it starts to explain the observations not matching up to exactly what you thought um, and this is where the numbers get crazy because you have to start running simulations with lots of assumptions about how much mass there is out there and how many perturbing objects there are and the eight chunky planets that we know of are obviously the biggest influencers of stuff in the solar system um, and it doesn't guarantee there's an object out there. Uh, at one point, we thought there was a planet called Vulcan, which orbited inside the orbit of Mercury. But it turns out they actually, you just need a bit of Einstein physics to explain why Mercury's orbit is weird. So it doesn't necessarily mean there has to be a planet out there. And this is where the scale model of a black hole comes in. Um, so it turns out that if you want an exotic solution for what this thing could be, it doesn't have to be a planet. Now, I should state for the record that we haven't found this thing yet. We haven't found an obvious smoking gun object out there. And that's annoyingly because a few different reasons. One is it's very faint, so it's not going to be very obvious in any of our surveys right now. Um, but some people are literally going out and looking for this thing. And in the simulations, there are orbital path predictions for where this thing should be. One of the other reasons this is annoying is that orbital path is kind of aligned with where the galactic plane is. And if you do survey science, you hate observing in the galactic plane because if you're looking for stuff in the solar system, you've got the rest of the galaxy popping up objects all over the place and you're looking for something small and faint in amongst all this crowd. So that causes issues. Um, So it's possible we've not just seen it yet and it may happen within the next 10 years that we get good enough with our surveys that we can say whether or not for sure there is another thing out there. Um, but one excuse could be that it's not actually a planet at all. And it's a little dinky black hole and literally a dinky black hole. So something, a black hole the size of planet Earth or the mass of planet Earth shouldn't really exist. And this is where it gets even more mind bending because the way that we make black holes these days are you wait for a star to go supernova and the star is sufficiently massive that you get a black hole that's more than about one and a half times the mass of the sun as a really massive black hole. 
And that's a confident path to getting a black hole that we're fairly certain of. But there's also a very slight possibility that you can have a primordial black hole. Have you heard of primordial black holes before? I have heard the term. PBH for short. PBH. Uh, it turns out that in the very, very, very early universe, and I don't know enough about the physics, so I'm going to shut up about this real soon, um, but the conditions are right and you can get dense regions that allow you to create a black hole from scratch. Um, and they don't have to be nearly as massive as these stellar mass ones or the very huge ones in the middle of galaxies, but they can be the seeds that then become these more massive things. So there can still be a population of these things floating around out there, but because they're so low mass, it's very hard to say for sure that they're out there at all. And because you can't see these black holes unless they're feeding, which they're not, they're just dark against the sky, it's really hard to see any obvious sign of them being out there. So there's one of the reasons this um, black hole paper came out um, was because there's a little hint of a signal that there might be a population of these objects um, out in the Milky Way, and in which case we may have one hiding in our very distant solar system. It's quite fun, but at the moment there's just not enough numbers to, to say for sure. Planet Nine's still looking more planety. Um, but the whole thing's been, been kind of fun, and it opens up all kinds of different rabbit holes. Uh, so if you want to uh, take a trip with us down any particular one, let me know. <laughs> it is it's a kind of uh, worrying solution to the problem, isn't it? They, so they can't find it, so you're postulating something which may or may not exist, which you probably can't see. Which does sound a little bit kind of, um, you can't prove me wrong. Uh, Territory. I mean, there's there an entire of field of astronomy looking at dark matter and dark energy, which is pretty much exactly what you've just said. No. I, well, wait, there is a way you could potentially search for this. I want to take um, that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, it's partly to the pub. But. So again, it sort of ties into our surveys um, because there's, there's a survey called um, it's Ogle for short, but it's the Observational Gravitational Lensing Experiment, and they have a telescope that's designed to sit and stare at the sky for as long as it can and look for little spikes in brightness of objects. And some of those spikes get caused by lens objects moving in front of more distant things, and you get a little bump in the light curve. But the speed of that event tells you about the mass of the thing that just did the lensing, and it's all quite cool and Einsteinian physics where you're talking about light getting bent by the gravity of these things. Um, and they were the ones that had reported a slight preponderance of things that are incredibly rapid, which means the mass of the lens is really small. So it could be free-floating planets or it could be um, planet mass black holes as well. And there's not really a way of saying for sure in your numbers. But what you can do, there is an observational thing you can do for looking for these black holes, is that what we know about dark matter, it's possible that dark matter particles might smack into one another very rarely, and they call that self-annihilation, but it might actually create a little gamma ray photon coming from that event, and you can actually look for those gamma rays as a little sign that something fun just happened with dark matter particles. But because dark matter particles are weird and they don't like interacting with anything, this is still quite speculative as well, but it, it does sort of work on paper. So there, there are a couple of ways you could try and rule this out. But I think right now it's more about ruling out where Planet Nine is hiding. And right now there's plenty of room for it to be hiding. I yeah. think, you know, five solar masses is not huge and it's not going to be bright at 600 AU. I went down this rabbit hole at some point as well because <laughs> the Planet Nine rabbit hole is fun. Um, but I'm sure when I was reading, there was some sus suspicion, suspicion is a strong word, but questioning about the as you're saying, this thing is using trans, looking at trans-Neptune objects, the way they're being shepherded. 
what I was reading was arguing that there's an observational bias towards the things they found, which is, appear to be shepherded. That they, there was, they're looking for things in that region of the sky, so they keep finding things in that region of the sky and say, oh, look, there's an overdensity of things in the region of the sky we're already staring at. Now, I was looking at this quite a long time ago. Maybe that has been um, sort of lifted, that suspicion. Uh, I, the, the, you, you might be right. And I think I saw a paragraph about that in the review paper I just digested. Right. And it said something along the lines of, that is true you, because you're looking in certain regions of the sky. So, for example, if you're following the ecliptic plane of the solar system, that's a good place to look for solar system objects. Um, you, it should be on both sides. And so yeah. you should have a spike in one direction and a spike in another direction. And you only see the spike in one direction. And if it was completely random, that should be about the same in both ways. So I think they were saying that helps to rule out that as a, um, okay. as a spurious okay. thing. Right. Um, doesn't mean it's not. I mean, even the, the review paper was sort of said there's still a very small chance, but they think it's less than 1% mm. that it's just random. Um, no, I mean, and, and it's, a, it's a good group doing it. who have got pedigree of predicting and finding other things before. And they, they, I think they didn't they find some of like, it make make or some of these sort of dollar dwarf planets i'm sure we're from the same group who are really pushing the planet nine angles so it's you know, they've kind of gone oh there should be something over here. oh look there is um on a smaller scale um because it's slightly easier to find some of these because they're smaller but nearer so i'm not i'm not massively questioning them but it's just the fact that you can be so good at your job you can look at the orbit of saturn and rule out certain masses because saturn doesn't get wobbled as much as it should because Cassini's been in orbit around Saturn for a long time, so that can give you a really accurate um, bit of orbital information for the planet because you've got a, a signal-limiting thing around it. Um, and if Planet 9 was out there and was more massive, then you'd see that. You'd see Saturn wander oh, that's so nice. slightly yeah. in the direction of this thing um, more than it should. Um, so they can rule out certain masses just by looking at one of the other planets in the solar system. I, I, I find that really cool. But they were also saying it gets a bit noisy because as you're going to lower and lower masses and further distances, you could potentially have a whole bunch of uh, leftover mass. I think there's about one Earth mass of stuff in the Kuiper belt um, in total. Um, but if you don't know exactly where that is or how it's distributed, that can also affect your numbers. So it can melt the brain. Um, but, you know, it's the, it's the fact that the way these things get talked about, it's Planet Nine is lurking out there like like some predator waiting to jump on us but it's yeah we're, we're never going to see it in our lifetimes but um it would be fun to at least get a hint that it was there but it's not like it's going to show up and destroy the earth or anything <laughs> things that have just shown about the blue though brings us nicely on to our next story oh, yeah. indeed uh, uh even if it is currently lurking behind the sun it's sort of looking it's hiding in plain sight behind the sun yes this is our second possible nearly confirmed interstellar interloper uh, so it was much excitement a couple of years ago when Oumuamua uh, came whizzing through the cigar shaped um, asteroid which came through the solar system at such speed and at such an odd angle that there was no plausible way that it, the object could have originated within our solar system um, and it seems to be that there's a, another good candidate showing similar behaviour um, which is quite exciting I mean, it's interesting you were just saying about the Kuiper Belt, the amount of mass in the Kuiper Belt. Um, it's worth saying that there is the sort of, the Oort cloud is postulated as a large cloud of material left over from the formation of the solar system lying way out beyond the um, Kuiper Belt. And there's a few objects whose orbital properties seem to match up with that, um, suggests that there's something, that there could be a, 
a big reservoir of things out there because we found a few of them and it'd be quite hard to find. Therefore, we think there are lots of them. Um, any, in theory, something like that could wander in occasionally. Um, and, and as it did, and the Oort cloud, I don't think is necessarily meant to be on such a sort of disk like the Kuiper belt. It could, so it could come into the solar system at quite an angle. It's more of a kind of sphere of stuff. It's theoretical. We don't know it's there and something I should stress, but it's possible there's that body, uh, a reservoir from which you could get uh, an object coming into the solar system at an angle. Uh, when I say an angle, I mean most of the planets, as Ali was just saying, most of the planets and, and a lot of the comets and a lot of the things we see in the solar system are all sort of on a plane. So moving around on a tabletop effectively and something suddenly comes whizzing in from way above the table and disappears down through the table and out the other side. Um, that's a bit odd, but it could come from the Oort cloud, something like that. But the velocity um, of this is sufficiently high that it's unlikely that it could have accelerated that speed um, just coming from the Oort cloud. If it had been sitting stably in the Oort cloud for a long time, got nudged and then fell in, the free fall time and speed it would have reached seems too much um, for it to be just merrily uh, uh, one of our body from our own solar system. So, hey, it's quite exciting. I think there is still a little bit of debate about the uh, this. It's not, it's not confirmed. Uh, but you, extra. you think it's quite likely? Yeah, it does seem pretty right? likely. Did, did I hear uh, that this one's more comety than Oumuamua? Yeah, so this is one of the exciting things. So Oumuamua was pretty much just a chunk of rock slash spaceship. <laughs> um, but depending who you believe, yeah. Uh, but it seemed to be pretty much a chunk of rock. I think there was a little bit of a hint of outgassing that some people tried to claim, but I think basically it's just a rock. Uh, whereas this thing seems to be much more of a comet. So a comet, big ball of ice, effectively. Uh, you know, Rosetta, uh, Rosetta, sixty-seven P. That's the one. The icy things, which you know, when they come in towards the sun melt uh, because the sun is evaporating the, the ices on the outer layers. Um, incidentally, there might be there's rocky body in there. It's not just purely ice, but primarily ice. Um, and so you get this sort of outgassing. The thing appears to become really large on the sky because there's this huge cloud of melted or evaporated debris around it. Um, and you know, some of those get left behind. That's our uh, you know, meteor showers we see because you get these trails of rubbish left behind by them. Um, but the exciting thing is about an interstellar uh, comet is that unlike Umeru, which was, we all we could see was reflected light coming off all we could see was reflected light coming off the uh, surface of that uh, rock. The cometary body starts to outgas as it melts as it comes in um, and you can suddenly potentially sample that with spectroscopy and get uh, a measurement of a sort of a body from another solar system. Uh, what's the composition of a comet in another solar system? Which is pretty damn cool. Um, so far, they have shown that it is got. I've got to look at my piece of paper. Hang on a second. You brought a piece of paper. I've got a piece of paper We're here. We're allowed to bring pieces of paper. <laughs> Cyanogen, which is a molecule of two carbon atoms and two nitrogen atoms, has been apparently detected in it. Which sounds really exciting, exciting, but apparently is actually very common in comets. Um, Actually, any result is exciting uh, because if you find something which has got an obtainium in it, oh my God, that's amazing. There's a new type of solar system out there which is fundamentally different to ours. But something which says, oh, you know, actually the composition of the comet is exactly the same as our sort of comets and behaves in a similar way, that's pretty damn cool as well because it shows that our system is not particularly special. Which, Because it comes back down to one of the sort of as a standard mantra in astronomy, which is if you find one of them, it's strange. If you find two of them, it's everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if the first cometary body, which happens to uh, we happen to manage to analyze from another system, looks exactly like ours, uh, the chances, therefore, 
all systems being fundamentally different has gone down a lot. Yeah. Um, it's still pretty exciting. Is it getting brighter? Yes. So that's the good thing. I mean, it's currently, as you said, it's on the other side of the sun. Um, so it's a little bit hard to do this analysis at the moment. Um, but as we move around the sun um, and also as it comes in, um, it's, it's getting, this is why we debated where it is. It's coming into the solar system at very high speed. Um, but it actually only gets as close to the sun as sort of just outside Mars's orbit. So it's not getting that close. And really, it's just flying by and it's kind of orbitary trajected. <laughs> orbital. <laughs> what, was I mean, what words I was using there? Its orbit's only getting sort of diverted a little bit by the sun. It's um, not coming in too close. No. So, so it's not like it's a little hairpin turn, didn't it? It's, it's just kind of uh, whizzing by and getting a little okay. bend in its orbit. Um, but that is closest point in middle of December um, it should be outgassing quite a bit um, and we might manage to get a much more you know, A it's going to be easier to observe because it's not near the sun and B it'll be brighter um, so you might get much better measurements of the composition of this thing which is really cool I forgot to check with Colin remember he's got the comet interceptor <gasps> yeah, mission would yeah. this one have been a viable target if they'd don't know. Thing? I, have, I have suspicion it's moving too fast for them to catch mm. up to I it I think but... so and I think also the orbital plane would be a problem mm. that you you know the, that the Comet Interceptor will be sitting in the plane of the table and this thing is whizzing by. Yeah. So you'd have to kind of make a handbrake turn in three-dimensional <laughs> space. Uh, sorry to bring up Planet Nine again, but that's, that's one of the possible origin yeah. stories for Planet Nine is it could have wandered in from somewhere else and actually slowed down and parked um, just because of interactions with other things. So this could be more distant stars. It was a much more crowded neighbourhood back then, so you can have influence from stars and potentially knock cloud stuff on us as well. Um, or it could have formed in situ and then been sort of lifted up to where it is. Um, so there's there's a few different competing ideas for if it's real, how you how do you make it? But one of them is to grab one from somewhere. Yeah, nick somebody else's planet. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting area. There does seem to have been some evidence and there's been some observations of lone planets, free floating planets, which have lost their star, which mm. maybe have been flung out after some supernova ejection, or more politely, probably a planetary nebula kind of point there, which a star's falling apart, the orbital. Uh, system comes unbound and a planet just drifts off into space. I read a th in that review paper they said something like our solar system was potentially capable of making five icy giants. Um, so it's possible Ooh. we've lost a couple as well. I think that they think there was enough material around at the time to help make a couple more. Um, but it looks like the current theory is that our giants started further in and then migrated out and a whole bunch of stuff might have got flung around at that point. So you could have maybe lost one then. Yeah. Maybe explains why Uranus is on its side too. It's also interesting to think that we've now seen one, we now think two of these interlopers in fairly quick succession. Mm. Now, does that suggest they're a new thing or is it more just that we're now starting to get good enough to spot them? And if so, is there a lot of this stuff going on? Yeah, latter, I think. Uh, I think that you need to, they, these things are faint um, and you need to be surveying the whole sky all the time to do it. Now, we are doing that um, and we have been doing that for a long time, primarily because of things like asteroids and et cetera, which might come whizzing in and, in and hit us. Uh, but our telescopes are getting better. They're able to detect fainter objects. Um, and also I think some of the algorithms which pick out the needles from the haystacks um, are, are improving. So I think that's part of the reason why a couple of them seem to pop up in quick succession. I don't think there's anything special about the last couple of years. Um, and it's quite possible there are others. You know, Say this object is coming in near to Mars, um, which is still quite a long way away, but hell, that's tiny in comparison to the size of the solar system, you know, the distances Ali's talking about out to Neptune, etc. You might get interlopers which are slightly bent off their course, pulled in towards the sun, but don't get half as close as that. 
um, but are still whizzing through our solar system. So probably there's probably loads of them. We, we, we'll just find more as we get better telescopes, which is pretty cool, really. It paints a sort of picture of a much more dynamic galaxy, doesn't it, with these chunks of rock whizzing around. And I suppose if you really want to get sort of into the sort of, well, it's not science fiction, but I think it's quite an exciting side of it, um, and think about ice giants as well, or us donating ice giants, the question about life is you know, if life can survive on these things, then if we do live in a dynamic galaxy in which rocks or comets are getting flung around and are whizzing about merrily between different solar systems, well, if some of them are carrying life with them, then life should, in theory, extend quite quickly across the entire galaxy, which is it feels, it feels a bit unhygienic to me, you know, when a star cluster <laughs> sneezes and a bunch of planets go flying up with yeah. it. <laughs> well, you know, we know we've got life in our solar system, or at least we have the, we must, at some point we must have the building blocks for said life. Um, what point, if, say, we had gas giants, which we lost, or, or, or if we've lost any planets in the formation process of our planetary system, was there life in any of those before it got lost? I suppose this comes back to, you know, currently we've got one data point. Maybe we're amazingly unique. Yeah. Well, uh, they, but, they would have got flung out when the solar system was like really, yeah, really young. young. So the it's odds probably are, true. But then yeah. if you brought it with you from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> if you've got comets, asteroids, that kind of stuff. Yeah. As a great man once said, life finds a way. Um, so I, I think the most, one of the most exciting things we could do other than gold blooming uh, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is to maybe find like space moss around mm. an exoplanet. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah I think the... finding... Finding extra stuff in the solar system would be incredibly exciting, you know, bottom of Europa's ocean or something. Um, but finding it around another star system that potentially we've never interacted with, just space moss. And then you could, you could say there's life all over the place, which would be kind of nice. Um, yeah. Zero, one, lots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to pull it right down to Earth now uh, with something that's kind of hiding in plain sight. Um, not particularly hiding, given it was announced quite uh, triumphantly a few days ago. There was a big SpaceX announcement about the progress they're making on their spaceship, or their Starship, I should say. I missed it. Was it good? Did you, did I you didn't actually it? watch it live, but I've caught up on it since then. Um, and it's, I mean, so one thing to point out is this is, uh, apart from sort of being a general publicity thing about, you know, the work they're doing and everything and some of the design changes they've made, it was also marking the 11th year since... SpaceX launched their first orbital vehicle. So everything all SpaceX have done has been in the last 11 years. I feel a bit old now. <laughs> but that was like their first orbital flight of the Falcon 1, um, which you may, may remember. Um, but it's only been 11 years, which is quite rapid where they've gone from that to yeah, now being true, one yeah. of the major sort of launcher companies. They've done loads of launchers, lots of different rockets. So and now they're working on this Starship one. And they called it like an unveiling for this one, is it? Yeah. Or? Um, so they've, they've essentially finished the external structure of the first prototype. I'm not quite sure what stage they're at. So hang on, what, what, can, can you do a one. summary of yeah, what's one. the... So this is HG Wellian crossed with five-year-old's drawing of a rocket, what I can best describe it as, clad in silver. Um, so this is their sort of um, Mars and Moon mission-sized rocket. Or moreover, the Starship. So, so it ain't small. No, <laughs> it's, it's a big, I mean, it's 50 metres long and 9 metres in diameter. And it is designed to carry 100 people. Whoa. To 9 metres, is so, that that's Saturn V width, is it? Or is it wider? I think it's getting up to that kind of thing. I'm not quite sure how it compares. So, so sorry, this is the uh, crew capsule. This is not the rocket. This is the... Uh... Well, no, it's not the booster. But it is the 
second stage, you might say, and oh, crew capsule. So this, this isn't like your short hop kind of thing. This is your, we're going to go land on the moon with 100 people and a butt ton of cargo and set up a base. This is like this is like yeah. the, this, is, this is the top half, right? Yeah, because it's like it's a, like a reusable second stage, pretty much. Yeah, it's 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 been compared to the space shuttle a few times. I think that's probably not a bad comparison because it does share some aesthetic similarities in the sense that it's got some fins on the back of it, and the way they um, get re-entry with this thing is by flying like a skydiver. Was Elon Musk's description? You basically because you've got a fairly big rocket. Um, or big big ship here you've got fins at the front fins at the back and you basically just plonk it hard into the atmosphere and come down on your long axis so that's your your drag is what slows you down and then eventually you're going to flip up and sort of fire your boosters and stop and land vertically because why wouldn't you how much does this weigh i don't actually know how much it weighs but what i will point out is it's made of steel it's between 80 and 120 tonnes, but that's only because Scott Manley said there might have been a typo in the press release that yeah. was behind Elon. Yeah, there was. he did point that out. There's something about one of the weights they showed was but wrong. But it's not light. I mean, oh, you know. No, the, but that's it's not. big. It's big, but, but that's not, um, what, 100 tonnes of Saturn V, wasn't it? 120 tonnes or something. It like could that. lift about 150 to the lower. 150? Yeah. Um, but then the shuttle okay. was capable of about 100 tonnes, I think. Yeah, yeah so, and, the, and the, I think the Falcon... Heavy is like sixty if it doesn't yeah. try to land again. But, um, so, so they're not also, far off. But I mean, then but we're not talking payload here. We're talking no. the whole thing. So yeah. I don't know, you know, because the whole plan was it was to refuel, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so one of the things are key, so there's a couple of key points about getting it orbital. One, you need a new rocket. There's a which doesn't exist. Falcon, not Falcon Heavy. What was it called? Now? The, the BFR. BFR. Yeah, it's I think it's got a different name now, but. Oh, yeah. but I really like the old. So, and this is like uh, like just a chunky, chunky rocket. It's something like thirty-seven um, Raptor engines on the bottom of it. Um, it's just this like this, this array of Raptor um, booster engines all strapped together, and that thing launches and is reusable. Please and that's what, using duct tape. I've sort of the WD forty is going to come back up in a second though. <laughs> I can do WD forty. Um, so that thing gets up orbital, and then you've got your your shuttle, your shuttle, your starship on top. You're going to have another starship already up there. Yeah. The two of them back into each other. You dump all the fuel from the second one into the first one. Or vice versa. Anyway. And then one of them comes back. And then one of them comes back down to Earth. The other one goes off on its merry way to whatever other planetary body you want to go visit. And at that point you're fully fueled, so you don't yeah. need to get into orbit anymore. Yeah. And so there's a big thing. No one's ever tried doing orbital refueling before. So they'll be the first to do that. Once they get to that stage. No one's done that. Very Interesting. Because yeah. it's quite hard. Yeah. It's cryogenic fuel. Yeah, mm, yeah. Um, but one of the weird things is when you, you said this thing looks like a it's it's shiny silver because it's made out of stainless steel, which is not what you'd normally make rockets out of. Well, why have they done that? There's a whole list of really good reasons. Um, interestingly, as I was saying about the D party, this isn't the first time you've made a stainless steel rocket. Apparently, the Atlas rockets were all made out of stainless steel. They were like balloons, which were yeah. like like really thin, really, and really like thin. almost expanded when it was fully fueled. It, it expanded. Like, they, they were pressurized balloons, basically of fuel. Oh, uh, that's dangerous. It, it went wrong. It did go wrong. Um, I think they're using heavier composite, different material, different manufacturing processes now, so it's not quite the same with the SpaceX one. Um, but you get much better. So usually stainless steel is too heavy. Mm. So you've used aluminium to compen- uh, carbon composites and stuff to make it strong and light. The stainless steel, you get really good strength, but it's quite heavy. But you've got other advantages to it. Um, one of them is actually heat dissipation. So stainless steel has much lower thermal conductivity than aluminium does. 
So if you're doing re-entry and you're getting hot on one side, with an aluminium thing, the whole thing gets hot very quickly. So the way to protect against that is by putting heat dissipating layers on top of it, which add to your weight. If you're stainless steel, you can get away without doing that. Um, it's much more robust and reusable. I think a key point about this, this Starship One is it's being built outside. It's not actually that hard to see. You can drive past the SpaceX factory and it's just sitting there being built outside because you don't need to protect the materials. Rusting and all that's far less of a risk. But then I want to know if you've got like possums making a little house <laughs> and <laughs> you've got to keep it locked up tight at night to stop the animals. It's actually Noah's Ark. A key difference between uh, the, the Atlas and the, uh, the, the, the SpaceX ones is I think the SpaceX ones are protecting the metal better. So in the Atlas ones, they didn't protect the metal, they didn't paint it to save weight, which meant that it kept rusting, which is why WD-40 was invented, which stands for Water Displacement Formula 40, because it dries moisture off materials. Uh, it's, not, it's not actually designed as an oil or lubricant, you really shouldn't use it as that, um, but it's designed to get rid of water and condensation, so you put that on metals. So WD-40 was invented for the Atlas rockets. Cool! Total aside, anyway. <laughs> um, you want to duct tape, I gave you WD-40. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, they've built it all outside, which means you don't have to build a big like enclosure to build it in with cranes and all the rest. This is all be done with like external standard cranes and cherry pickers and stuff. It's way, way cheaper than anything else. They were using carbon composites previously, and that was something like twelve or twenty dollars a pound. Stainless steel's about two fifty. So it's vastly cheaper. Um, and it's much more readily available. The carbon composites take a long time to produce and mold and all this kind of stuff. Stainless steel you can buy big bulk sheets of. I kind of like it. It almost feels like it's going steampunk. Yeah, it is. More yeah. retro. Um, retro but rocket. Is the, is the model that they have right now, I'm assuming it's not flight ready. Is it just a sort of concept? It, is it nothing to fly it with? Uh, well, it's going to do a short hop, I think. So like a, a suborbital up and back down again. But is this to allow them to refine the design yeah. and the aerodynamics and then say, right, the design's working? Because it, it yeah. used to have three fins and now it's only got two or something. Yeah, they've done tweaks already. Evolving. They've but gone from the carbon composite to the stainless steel. Um, they've got a six-month trajectory from now until orbital flight. That's quite exciting. Like, Seriously? The orbital flight in six months? That's what, oh, yeah. Doesn't that got, mean like, you need the bottom? Well, this science fiction. Fiction. well, they're working on that as well. In six months? I, I suspect more like a year, two years. It's, it's an aggressive timeline, let's put it that way. Oh, God, I going to be exciting regardless. They were talking a lot it? about the timeline for the starship, less so about the rocket. Mm. So uh, I think the two might be a bit saying we work. Because apparently there's this like 37 Raptor engines that have to get built for the big rocket. Currently, SpaceX are making one rocket every 10 days. So that production rate, assuming nothing else, you're not making enough engines. So the timelines didn't quite add up to me, but I don't know, maybe there's more plans on work. It'll be fun to see what happens. I'm not, I'm not convinced it's going to be in orbit within six months. I don't quite get the braking thing as well. That's... But then it's, it's going to be really tricky, work? right? I mean, you're kind of, like you're saying, it's too big to build in a hangar, really. I yeah. mean, the VAB for Apollo was massive. Yeah. And the cost of just building that would probably be quite prohibitive compared to what SpaceX want to do. So yeah. building it in view of everybody and then wanting to test it before, you know. I mean, there's something quite fun about how uh, low tech it looks with just like all the weld joints yeah. between the seams. And but then I mentioned it was it you I was talking to earlier where welds can actually be quite yeah. <laughs> structurally very sound. So if you do your welding right, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then it's kind of when you zoom in on pictures of the Apollo spacecraft, you do see there's like little um, bumps and lumps where the welds are and the rivets are, and you, you realize it's not this pristine 
yeah. sci-fi, no seams visible kind of thing. It really is just lumps of metal that humans have stuck together. So yeah, I mean, um, you think about back story about the ISS bringing a leak, and yeah. it was filled up with two-part epoxy and some duct tape. Space tech isn't that hard. <laughs> well, you, well, I, I kind of, I'm willing this thing to fly. I would like yeah. to see it fly, but I'm just kind It'll of be amazing. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's crazy the timelines, the complete changes. It's just, it's amazing work, and it really is. I think putting fire under other nations that want to do missions to the moon and to Mars and all mm. that because it is they're really pushing the boundaries here. I've always yeah. wanted to see it. One of these it was kind of it's like a space shuttle on the top of a rocket. Whereas the, the old space shuttle was strapped to the side. Yeah. This one's like, you know, big rocket core and then a huge shuttle-like re-entry vehicle on top. So that on its own is quite exciting because we've not flown like that before. Here we go. Does it have windows? I don't know if the current one does. They have plans for a very nice like panoramic forward yeah. dome view thing, as you can imagine with SpaceX. Uh, sort of a st- attractive aesthetic they go if for. The windows to... had mass. So yeah. Yeah. You, know, I mean, you could get virtual windows and just have a wee fisheye camera at the front and everyone uses the same camera, puts on a headset and it's yeah. maybe a lot less. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I saw something talking about plane design for that. You'd build a supersonic plane, it'd be a lot easier if you just had no windows at all. Yeah. Much better. I need to go and look at this. Yeah. I haven't looked at it at all. <laughs> it sounds I'm scared brilliantly to, mad. I'm it scared does. to look into it more though because the more I read, the more I might be like, I'm not buying it or you know I kind of I, I might just wait and be pleasantly surprised if it I'm not I mean, how, how does this land on on the moon I, I mean I'm not sure about the moon because it doesn't have any braking for Mars they had to come in an incredibly steep approach angle <laughs> they really uh-huh. got to come in and it gets incredibly hot as a result and that's so good it, with the stainless steel it's fine I'm not sure it's good steel melts at what 50,000 degrees they have a put there well so there's two things about that one they're putting special panels in particularly heat sensitive areas so they've got some sort of heat shielding there and their plan for doing the mars entry where you get a lot hotter is to let the aircraft sorry to let the spacecraft sweat now what i mean by this is they're going to pump uh, liquid methane around an outer shell on the star on, on the spaceship which has very small pores drilled in the outer layer and as that gets hot the methane expands and outgasses through those holes, which is basically the same thing as humans do with, with water on their skin to sweat. And that but my, my sweat's out. not flammable. <laughs> methane seemed a weird choice to me. But the reason for that is because you can get carbon dioxide and water from the Martian surface, which with some fancy chemistry you can turn into methane. So that's how you oh, refuel I've read it. This. You can do it with, you bring hydrogen with you. And you can suck carbon dioxide out there and make methane and oxygen yeah. to go home with. And what, it's also in real time. Me- oh, to go home. Sorry. No, to go home. And liquid methane is what fuels the rockets as well. We might have to do a Mars special this at is, some point. This is this <laughs> six months. No, not to get to no. Mars. No, 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 no. no, no but, but I think six months to be fully orbital. Right, but, okay. I think you have just hit the nail on the head, though. I mean, you've got to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and Mars's atmosphere, yeah. and those atmospheres are two completely yeah. different atmospheres. Yeah, it's like Mars. Mars is like 1% of Earth. So what works on Earth? Yeah. Does it really work? Which is why you end up with sky cranes and crazy yeah. things they've had to do to land on rovers. Yeah. And presumably, if you could I'm just. all for that, too. Oh, you know, totally. Uh, um, landing on Unless rovers. I'm in it. I'm <laughs> not going, not landing on Mars in a sky crane. It still sounds like a drunken idea in a pub. Well, the fact worked. that we're even having this conversation is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah it's true. You know, you're right. Like it's, it's I know, I know. I, I, I feel like I'm sitting here being like, what about this? This doesn't work. But that is because. It, Invariably, cool. when we bring up SpaceX, the three of us are like, really? Yeah. <laughs> we have to go and read into it and just yeah. go, I'm not sure. I think it's also an interesting point that you've, you've hit it on the head there. Because this has to go to Mars and back again, it's got two re-entries to do. So your traditional yeah. methods of sky cranes or 
single-use heat shields, ablative heat shields that burn up as you go in, they don't work anymore. Right. Because you've got to be able to reuse it. Hence this kind of methane sweat idea does make sense. But if this, if you could just cover it in stainless steel and therefore improve your properties, and like, why, why aren't us doing that already? Or, I think like, it's, different, it's different problems. Right. It's, they've taken a different tack. Yeah, and NASA, I know they're using a different. They're using aluminium, but they're doing it in an ISO network structure, which means they're milling away a huge amount of the material, um, to maintain strength versus mass. You know, mass versus strength sort of side of things. It's not ISO. I can't remember what it's called. It's a certain um, where you mill away material, you leave a certain structure behind made of triangles that's very strong, but you mill away ninety percent of your material, so it's incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. So again, SpaceX are going for the avant-garde risky thing that's very cheap because that's what they're aiming for it's kind of NASA fun a different yeah, they, yeah they've got the two completely different models yeah it's like nasa's one is what do we need it to do how do we get the mass down as low as possible and then cost is not the most important factor there it still matters yeah. you're not going to throw money at it but at the same time um it's interesting that you're the first thing spacex are doing is going how do we get it cheap and renewable and do it um so it'll be interesting to see if it works I guess, because I, I sense that if they get it to work, everyone else will be like, right, well, we'll be building stainless steel rockets too. Let's see if by episode 50 of the podcast, we're at what stage they're at then. We're going to have to, we're we're to go to a lunch today. and do a live today. today. Ten more. Ten more, ten months. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll keep your viewers out for that one. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks all. Bye. Bye.